this morning's message. is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 21 to 26 and the title for the message this morning is Loving Christ Body Loving Christ Body from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 21 to 26 And the Word of God says this, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which are more presentable parts, do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray now that as we uh, prepare uh, to walk through this passage of Holy Scripture, uh, word by word, phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, Lord God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our guide and our instructor. We pray, Lord, that you would take hold of our minds and of our attention and that you would teach us your word. Help us to understand it rightly. Above all, we pray that you would help us to apply it to our lives, to apply it to our own lives and not to think of who in this room or who on the Internet might be listening or we hope is listening. Father, we pray that you would enable each of us to look into ourselves, to look at our own soul and our own heart. And we pray that you would reveal to us the places where we need to grow. And we pray that you would each, that you would help us each to grow in those areas that we might bring greater glory to you and that we might be a greater blessing to the body of Christ. And Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, There is a uh, very old proverb which dates back hundreds of years. I I did some research to try to figure out where this proverb originated, and I discovered that nobody really knows. Uh, It's been quoted as far back as William Shakespeare and uh, even before him. And, uh, but some of you may have heard this proverb uh, at, at some point in your life. And it, and it goes like this. Uh, for want of a nail, a shoe was lost. And for want of a shoe, uh, a horse was lost. And for want of a horse, a rider was lost. And for want of a rider, the battle was lost. And for want of a battle, the war was lost. The point of that 
very old proverb is that oftentimes in life, the things that we think are insignificant, it's minor, it's a minor detail. Uh, sadly, too often we find out later, right, that it has enormous consequences. What we thought was so insignificant turns out to be huge. And it was a, a detail that we should not have overlooked. This can be true of people as well. The well-known story of Charles Spurgeon and how he came to know the Lord is just one of the best, uh, I think anyways, one of the best classic examples uh, of that. When Spurgeon was just 15 years old, he uh, set out to attend church uh, on his own one uh, cold, wintry morning. And uh, honestly, I'm not sure why he was on his own doing this. Uh, I went back and re-looked at the biography I read on him, and it, it doesn't quite say. But nonetheless, he, he remembers uh, going out on his own to attend church. There was a particular church that he had uh, wanted to attend. And it was a very cold, uh, wintry, blistery morning that, uh, that England is uh, well known for. And uh, as he continued to go, uh, he began to realize by his own admission uh, that the church that he had wanted to attend was, was much farther than he had realized and it was taking him longer to get there. He also, by his own admission, was not a believer at that time. He admits that because this is the story that he recounts of when he actually got saved. So it's interesting that here is a 15-year-old unbeliever going to church on his own in a snowstorm. Right? But that's because, by again, in his own biography, he was raised that that's what you do on the Lord's Day. You go to church. And so he's making his way there through this snowstorm, and it is just extremely cold. And so he decides uh, to turn into a, uh, a little small Methodist church, mainly to just really to get out of the cold. But he figures, well, you know, at least I'll attend church. I will just turn into this very small Methodist church and uh, get in out of the cold. And he says that when he entered the church, he describes it in his own words as being a single room of only about 30 by 40 feet. Really small room. And he says there was only about 15 people gathered in that room. And then when the service was about to begin, he discovered from hearing the conversation of those around him that the regular pastor had failed to arrive. Maybe he got caught in a snowstorm and was not able to make it. They don't really know for sure. Thus, a man in the church took it upon himself. Right? Kudos to him. Takes the initiative. A gentleman in the church stands up and decides he's going to deliver uh, some ad hoc message uh, from the cuff so that the people can hear the word of God to some degree. Spurgeon then offers his own description. And I'm going to read uh, from Spurgeon so that you can hear it in his own words. Spurgeon said this, quote, At last a very thin-looking man... A shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort went up into the pulpit to preach. Now it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. <laughs> he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. 
The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was I, there was, there was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, it says, look. Now, looking don't have to, uh, don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, said he in broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look, so some look to God the Father. No, look to Him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ, the text says. Look unto me, look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. Spurgeon says... At that moment, he felt his heart strangely warmed. And he believed that at that moment, Christ had truly died for his sins. To this day, and historians have done research, to this day, no one knows who that lowly cobbler was. No one knows who that poor, seemingly insignificant individual was that God used to lead the prince of preachers to a saving knowledge of Christ. But Spurgeon, by his own admission, thought that this man was insignificant. At least, at least that was the thought when he first stood up and he began preaching. Doubtless, there were probably others in that small church. There were probably people in that man's community and in his neighborhood who thought the same about that man. He is insignificant. He is uneducated. He can't even pronounce simple words correctly. Yet, God used that nobody to reach a man who would minister for nearly 40 years to the church, who would preach over 3,000 sermons and write more than 40 books. Most of them are still in print today. The point is that we need to be careful. We need to be careful about thinking that we know who is more or less valuable or significant within the church. We need to be careful never to judge a book by its cover. To look at appearances or to look at what someone does or what someone does not do. To look at what someone contributes to the church in terms of their efforts or energy or in terms of their money. And think to ourselves that that person over there is really important to our church. Or that that person over there is not so important or significant to our church. 
Because sometimes the person who seems insignificant is the very one that God is using the most to bring about growth and spiritual development in the church that we aren't even aware of. Growing us in ways that we didn't even know we needed to be grown in. And sometimes the person who is very, who seems very important and very, and very um, uh, uh, gifted and contributes much to the church can be the person who is secretly causing the most damage in the church. And so Paul tells us here in the beginning of verse 21 of our text, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. We cannot and we should not say to any member of the church, we should not even think this way, I don't really need you. We don't really need you. You don't really contribute all that much to the church. And if you were to leave the church, we would be just fine. We could do just fine without you. Instead, Paul says in verse 22, on the contrary. In other words, here is what we should, here is, um, here is why. Here is why we should never say to another member of the body, we just don't really need you or we're really not that dependent on you because here is what we are not realizing according to Paul Paul says on the contrary the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Did you catch that? He says the parts of the body that seem, that appear, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, in other words, you may think they are weaker. You may think that they contribute little to nothing to the church. You may think that they are not needed. But in the mind of God, these may be the very members who are indispensable. In ways that we don't even realize, God may be using these seemingly weaker and insignificant members of the church to grow us and bless us in ways that we are entirely unaware of. In Isaiah 55, for example, verses 8 and 9, God says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, God says, you don't think the way I do. 
You don't do things the way I do things and do not presume to know what goes on inside the mind of God. In Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 34, the Apostle Paul says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who knows the mind of God? Who can really understand how God thinks and how, why He operates the way that He does? This is why the only reason we should be willing to part with a member of the body is for objective, overt, and unrepentant sin. In fact, that is what Paul commands the church in Corinth to do back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you remember that. He commands him to remove a member of the church who was engaged in overt sexual immorality. Because Paul knew that if it was left unchecked, that kind of behavior would spread through the church like leaven. But apart from overt, unrepentant sin, we should never think that a person is less significant in the church than anyone else. Even when we think about those individuals within the church who just seem to be a drain on the church. Some of you have known individuals like that in the church. They're always needy. They're always struggling. They're always needing counseling. They are always needing someone to bring them meals or someone to drive them to appointments. God may be using that person. God may be using that person to teach the rest of us how to serve. He may be using them to teach the rest of us how to be selfless, how to sacrifice, how to give without expecting in return, how to genuinely put the needs of someone else before our own. Because, you know, it's easy to say we should love our neighbor as ourselves. It's easy to say that as Christians we should always be willing to be the least servant to everyone else until God puts someone in our life that is asking us to be the least servant to someone else. The other reason we should never think that there are some in the church who are less significant than others it's because when we do that, we are by default implying that there are others who are more significant than others. And when we do that, that is how division within the church begins to take root. This is exactly what James warns us about. In James chapter 2, verse 4, he says that when we do that, quote, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James says when you make distinctions of any kind, this person is less significant, this person is more significant, this person contributes more, this person contributes less... 
We need this individual in the church. We'll do whatever we have to do to not let them leave. But as far as this person goes, well, they decide to go somewhere else. That's just fine. Paul says, when, James says, when you make distinctions within the church, you become judges with evil thoughts. Think about that for a moment. How is it that making distinctions causes us to become judges with evil thoughts? That's a strong word. Because Christ died equally for all believers. All believers, listen beloved, all believers are equally the bride of Christ. In the eyes of Christ, when it comes to his bride, there are not some Rachels and some Leahs. He loves every member of his bride equally, invaluably. Thus, when we make distinctions, we are saying that somehow that's not true. Or that somehow Christ is wrong to love all of his bride equally. Within the church, all believers are equally members of the same body. As Paul has already made clear in verse 13, we have all been baptized into one spirit and we have all been made to drink of the one spirit. Thus, when we make distinctions within the church, when we say or think that some members are less or more significant than others, we become judges with evil thoughts because we are literally denying the truths of God's word. We are denying the Word of God. We are saying God's Word is not trustworthy. We are saying God's Word is not true. And that is evil on the highest level. And so, Paul's first point from verses 21 to the middle of 24 is do not think that some are more or less valuable than others. Do not presume to know the mind of God or to know what God is doing within the church. His second point is this, and this is from the middle of verse 24 to verse 26. His second point is this God sovereignly arranges the members within the church for good reason. And we dare not question God's reasons. But he sovereignly does so for good reason. Notice verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, for two reasons. For two reasons. Here's reason number one, verse 25. That, right? You hear it? There's the reason. Here's the first reason. That there may be no division in the body. That there may be no division in the body. Thus God arranges the body, the local church, and all of the members within the church in order that there might not be divisions within the church. Then why are there divisions? Right? Why do church splits happen? Why is there conflict within churches? 
The short answer? Sin. That's the short answer. But I've got 20 more minutes, so I'm going to give you the longer answer. The longer answer. Because we are sinful creatures. We are sinful creatures, and for that reason, we often behave sinfully. The Bible says, do not make distinctions within the church. And we do make distinctions. The Bible says, do not value some above others. And we do value some above others. The Bible says, view and treat one another as one body. And we don't treat one another and view one another as one body. The Bible says, treat others as we would want to be treated. And yet so often we treat others as we think they deserve to be treated. My friends, when things go wrong within the church, it is not because there is something wrong with God's word. It is because there is something and it is not because there is something wrong with God, and it is not because there is something wrong with the Holy Spirit. It is because there is something wrong with us. Scripture says, "Walk by the Spirit." And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 Yet so often, yet so often many Christians in many churches walk by their own flesh. They walk by their own desires. They walk by their own sinful passions. And then they scratch their heads and wonder why is there so much division within the church? You know, we, we make fun um, or at least I do uh, we make fun of uh, liberal politicians who govern liberal large cities who defund their police departments and thereby uh, decreasing the number of police officers that are on the street. And then they sit back and they scratch their head and wonder, why is crime skyrocketing? I just don't get it. We, we don't, I don't see the correlation that is going on. We laugh at those kinds of politicians and yet so often churches do the very same. Every person in the church being driven by their own personal agenda, being driven by their own personal desires, being driven by their own pa personal uh, passions and by their flesh. And then they sit back and they wonder, why is there so much division and conflict inside the church? We don't get it. We don't see the correlation Beloved, God has arranged the church in such a way and has given instructions to the church in such a way that there be unity and harmony within the church. We just need to live out and follow what God has told us. It's all right here. It's all right here. How to have a harmonious, unified, loving church is right here. And if I had to simplify it for you, I would simply say this. Forget about yourself. Stop thinking about yourself and think more about the person sitting next to you. Think more about the other people sitting in the room. And that is how you bring about harmony 
and unity within the church. The second reason, the second reason God has so composed the body in the way that he has is found at the end of verse 25. So look at the end of verse 25. Paul then says, but that, so here's the second reason, but that the members may have the same care for one another. God has arranged the body, the church, the universal church, and the local church in the way that he has so that the members may have the same care for one another. The members within the body so that we might all properly care for each other. In other words, he has placed each of us in the right place, in the right position, and has given all of us the right gifting and abilities that each person might receive the proper amount of care within the church. But again, why doesn't this always happen within the church? Because, beloved, there, there's nothing wrong with the design. There's nothing wrong with the design. That is for certain. To use an illustration as an explanation, it's like a brand new automobile just coming off the assembly line. It, has, it, has, uh, it, is a, it is a finely tuned machine with all of its pristine and shiny parts right off the assembly line. That thing would purr and just run amazingly until someone comes along and puts diesel fuel in the gas tank if it's not supposed to run on diesel. And then you know what's going to happen, right? Kaplunk. Kaplunk, kaboom. It is not going to run in the way that it was designed to run. There's nothing wrong with the way that God has arranged the various members of the church. Often the problem is what we are taking in in terms of what we are watching, what we are listening to, how much time we spend in God's Word, how much time we spend in prayer, how much time we spend filling our minds and our hearts and our soul with the things of God rather than with the things of this world. Because God doesn't make mistakes and God doesn't make junk. If there is conflict or division within the church, it is not because there is something wrong with God's Word. It is not because there is something wrong with God, and it is not because there is something wrong with the church as an institution in the way that God designed it. The problem is with us. The problem is right here in each of us. Verse 24, Paul says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Thus, the aim of God's design 
is that each member might love one another to the degree that, verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Because that's what a family should look like. That's what a true family should look like. There is something radically wrong when a member of the church is suffering and the rest of the church, or half of the church, or even one member of the church thinks to themselves, well, that's not my problem. Hopefully somebody will take care of that person. I'm sure someone else will look after that individual who is suffering. In a biblical and healthy church, when one member suffers, there should be overwhelming help and support for that person. The goal of the church for me should be for that individual to say, enough. I've, I've, I've been helped enough. I'm, I'm good. Rather than have them say, I needed more help. And no one was there. I was hungry and no one fed me. I was thirsty and no one gave me something to drink. I was sick and no one visited me. That's what we don't want any member of the church to say to themselves. And that's certainly not what we want Christ to say to any member of this body on the day of judgment. And when one member rejoices, when one member is blessed in some way, we should all rejoice with them. Because that's what it means to be a family. That's what it means to be one body. Paul makes a very similar point in Hebrews chapter 12, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. In verses 9 and 10, Paul writes this, Let love be genuine. Genuine. It's not enough to just say we love each other. It's not enough to just speak the words. You know, it's not even enough to just do things that appear loving. We ought to have a genuine affection for one another. We ought to genuinely love each other. Paul says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You know, right there, we could eradicate church splits if we would simply follow that one simple principle, outdo one another in showing honor. But then Paul will go on to say in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Recall that this is exactly what Jesus prayed for. In his high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, Jesus prayed this in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal. He prays to the Father, I do not ask for these only. That is, I'm not just praying for the 11 disciples who are still here with me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I love that. 
You realize 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying for every one of you. If you're a believer, if you've placed faith in Christ, He knew you by name. He is God. He could see your face 2,000 years later, and He is praying for everyone who is sitting in this room today. He says, I am also praying for those who will believe in me through their word, through the apostles' word, listen, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Here's the reason, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them... And you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Listen, here's the point of his prayer. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. The evidence, the evidence to the world according to Jesus that he really did come from God the Father that he really is the Messiah that he really did die on the cross and rise from the dead three days later is when the church behaves as one and cares for each other according to Christ because if the gospel if the gospel really does have the power to transform lives, to unite people of various ethnic and cultural and economic backgrounds, then the primary place, the primary place we should see the evidence of the transforming power of the gospel is right here in the church. If people don't see the transforming power of the gospel inside the church, why should they believe us? Why should they believe a word we say? The church is the place where we should see people, where the world should see people saying to each other, I am willing to put you first. I am willing to sacrifice for you. I am willing to serve you before myself. The church is the place where we should see people genuinely loving one another, caring for each other, being there for one another. Because this is what Jesus prayed for. This is why God arranged the church and the members of the church in the way that He has. We just keep putting diesel into the gas tank. Something's wrong. It's not the church. It's not God's Word. Because God doesn't make junk. And He doesn't make mistakes. In the end, it's about loving the bride of Christ. It's about loving the bride of Christ simply because she is the bride of Christ. 
It's about being able to look at one another in the eye and say, if Christ was willing to lay down his life for you, then so am I. Then so am I. We should be able and willing and desirous to say that to one another. It's about truly believing that we are all one body. And just like we all strive, just like we all strive to care for our own physical bodies, just like no one in this room would want to part with any member of his physical body unnecessarily, even his appendix, it may not do anything, but if there's nothing wrong with it, I want to keep my appendix. Thank you very much. So also, we should strive to care for one another in the same way. And we should never be okay with losing a member of the body regardless of what they contribute or don't contribute to the body. The church is not a place to play favorites. It is not a place to put people up on a pedestal. Anyone, for the love of God, don't put me on a pedestal. Because the higher you place me, the farther I'm going to fall when it happens. And it will happen because I am only human. I will make mistakes. The church is the body of Christ. One body where we should all have love for one another as much as we love our own physical body. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray. We plead with you that you would cause by your Holy Spirit the transforming power of the gospel to be a reality in this church. Father, we pray that you would take hold of our hearts and that you would change the desires of our hearts because we cannot change our own hearts. We recognize that. We cannot change ourselves. We cannot change our own character. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would change the desires of our heart and that you would give each of us a heart that truly loves each member of this church, that truly has affection for each member of this church that loves each member as Christ loves every member of his bride equally. That we would not play favorites, that we would not view some as being more significant than others or some as being less important than others, but we would recognize that we all belong. We all have value. We all need to be here. We all belong here. And we would not want to part with any member of our body. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to embrace that truth that if Christ 
was willing to lay down his life and to sacrifice equally for every member of this body, Lord, we pray that we would be willing to do the same. For she is your bride. We pray that we would value your bride just as much as you value your own bride. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.